Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We hear justice often described, or perhaps not described, simply cited, uh, appealed to in social and political discourse. So there are a lot of things which come for our contemporaries under the umbrella of justice. And so, you know, you can think of like climate justice and racial justice and social justice more broadly conceived. Uh, But many claims are advanced in the name of justice. Uh, But it's not always clear uh, what those claims entail or what the content of those claims are. So it can be difficult to establish a rapport uh, between those who lay claim to and those who are responsible for making whatever restitution or kind of tendering the concerned good and when you don't have a common language. Now, do I think that the Thomistic theory of justice should be that common language? Uh, perhaps I think that. Um, but, but I think at the very least, on account of the fact that it is deeply rooted in the tradition, uh, it serves as a jumping off point or at least a starting point for hosting those types of conversations, which will inevitably involve some modicum of translation. And so you can't presume that when you use the same vocabulary and grammar that that will necessarily um, appeal to or apply to uh, other individuals insofar as they may be applying uh, another vocabulary and grammar. And as a result of which, there's the risk of of talking past. So I think it's helpful to return to a kind of ancient and medieval notion insofar as a lot of what we're doing in the modern and contemporary period is picking up the pieces of a kind of exploded tradition or a kind of um, compartmentalized tradition, however you want to describe it. But at the very least, we need to do some archaeology and uh, some recovery in order to have any hope for a genuine report. So then uh, we'll just talk about how St. Thomas describes the virtue of justice, uh, the various species which he uh, identifies within justice broadly conceived. And then I'll spend a considerable amount of time on the common good insofar as this is precious to the Thomistic tradition, to St. Thomas himself, the Thomistic tradition, but it's also something that is just lost. It's just lost in the 21st century as to what constitutes the common good. Uh, So for which reason, I think it's important to recover it. And so justice, just, I mean, St. Thomas, when he says justice, justitia, it's on the basis of use, right? Which you know is an especially difficult word to render in English. It might mean right, it might mean it might mean law, right? It might mean any number of things. But as we often uh, receive it and then apply it, uh, when we describe justice, we're talking about the rendering to another what is his due. So what is his due? Uh, That might be something due naturally. It might be something due politically, right? And so St. Thomas has this notion of the usientium, which is things that we observe in various times, places, and cultures, so would seem to pertain to the natural law, but the expression thereof, insofar as it's variable, is a little more distant from the natural law, properly so-called. Or it just might be like the human do, uh, which would be those laws which we make as a way by which to determine, specify, and apply the natural law in whatever context is concerned. So like thou shalt not kill, that'd be an example of a a first precept of the natural law or kind of primary precept of the natural law. And then traffic laws, which are downstream of that precept, would be examples of human law, which are for good order and for the rendering to each what is his due, which is a modicum of bodily integrity, safety, however you describe it best. 
And now, for St. Thomas Aquinas, justice does not simply concern acts or operations, uh, although that's how he differentiates justice from temperance and fortitude, which he says concern the rectification of our own appetites, right? So when we're talking about moral virtues or virtues of the appetites, we're typically describing either like for him, sense appetite or rational appetite. And so justice would be that which governs rational appetite and it concerns operations vis-a-vis others. And so it's not just the actions, but it's a virtue as well. Okay, so that's, that's something that is sometimes lost in the conversation. So it's not just something extrinsic. It's not just about constituting whatever, you know, like do thing in whatever concerned mean, but it's actually something that can make you good and to act well, which for him is the primary category under which he organizes his, what we would call moral theology. So you know that the Summa Theologiae, his big book of theology, it's divided into three main parts, the second part of which is then divided into two parts. So we'll say the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. When he gets into the second part of the second part, he says, all right, now we're going to get more specific about the moral life. In order, to, in order to do so, the most helpful paradigm under which to collect our moral knowledge is virtue, because it's a principle of intelligibility. It's what gives us purchase on reality, and it's what helps us to reason upon reality in a way that's fruitful and meliorative to make up an adjective, but something that actually conduces to our betterment. Um, so for St. Thomas, it's important to have this before our mind's eye, namely that that justice is itself a virtue. And he identifies a few kind of key notes or key themes that are at work in justice. So first, there's this alterity to justice, namely that in justice, I consider the other. All right, so I stand not against the other or in confrontation with the other, but I stand at some distance from the other, okay? Because I'm running to another, what is his due? Also, there's a sense of equality, that justice, virtue, and act tries to establish some equality. And we'll give examples of this when we describe the different species of justice. And then there's also a sense of precision, all right? So we don't say more or less just, Typically, and you know this from the time of your adolescence, you want what is precisely just, right? That's not fair unless it is tendered in exactitude. So um, with respect to these different, you know, kind of features at work in justice, I think that uh, it conduces to a certain, what, objectivity, I suppose. Um, whereas in the case of, and I'm using temperance and fortitude as virtues with which to compare justice insofar as they're in, you know, like the, the ancient and, and medieval tradition, they're the ones that are, that are held together of those four cardinal virtues. These would be the ones that inform our appetites or rectify our desires, our kind of inclinations or tendencies. Um, so justice has a kind of objectivity to it insofar as it's concerned with what is right, with what is fair, with what is binding, with what is owed, with what is due. We can describe it in a variety of ways, but it's about realizing a certain rule or measure in the concerned object, right? In the concerned thing itself. So this issues from uh, a variety of things, um, perhaps things is a crass way to describe this category, but um, it arises from the nature of things. Um, and that's something that is, again, especially precious to the Thomistic tradition, that, that justice is an eventuality of nature as received. Okay, so that something is due is downstream of the fact that something is given. I'll repeat that. That something is due is downstream of the fact that something is given. And in the most primal sense, what is given 
is creation, right? What is given is our nature. And on account of the fact that we have been furnished with this nature, there are certain ways in which we should comport ourselves. And so when St. Thomas will describe the virtue of justice, he, he gets into justice in say, and then I'll spend a considerable amount of time d detailing what he calls the quasi-potential parts of justice, which are virtues that share in the dynamism of justice, but lack the integrity of justice in some way, shape, or form. But when he lists these things, uh, we're surprised uh, kind of by their banality or the mundane quality of what's described. So he says, like, we owe to the other a modicum of truthfulness. We owe to the other a modicum of liberality. We owe to the other a modicum of gratitude. We owe to the other a modicum of affability, right? Which sound like very simple things, kind of common sense things, but that's it. On account of the fact that I find myself within the setting of a family, a society, a polity, a church, in which we are each constituted according to a particular nature, from which natures arise certain social arrangements, political arrangements, ecclesial arrangements, right? I owe you certain things. Like, I owe you the truth. Because not so much like in the modern sense of claim rights, you can go and grab the truth from me. But if this whole thing is going to work out, I need to deal in the truth. Because without that, this whole thing breaks down. And so everyone thinks of the pertinent political circumstances in which that was born out in spades, okay? So we know this to be the case. Like you think about the way in which Americans watch the news nowadays, right? If you've ever watched the news intergenerationally, it's a very fun social experiment because a certain generation watches the news and they're like, that's definitely a case. A certain generation watches the news and they're like, you guys listening to this? And then a certain generation watches the news and says, ha, which one's the advertising, you know? So once you cease to deal truthfully, and that's not to say like one way or the other. I think that most organs of press have effectively despaired of the truth and have gone in for either advertising or campaigning, whatever they choose to do, fine. It's just a different thing. But it has this kind of facade of being a truth-bearing organ. And for that reason, it has become increasingly laughable, right? So you see society kind of crumbling. You see our institutions crumbling when you lose your hold. And St. Thomas will say that's rooted in our natures because as made to the image and likeness of God, we have a mind with which to know and a heart with which to love. And we grow in our expression of the image and likeness of God to the degree and extent that we know better and love better and are progressively assimilated to or conformed to the Most High God in whose rational nature we participate. So we need the truth because for us, the truth is food and drink. And without it, we'll die of thirst or we'll die of hunger. Okay? So it's something for him. It's not so much assessed at the level of claim rights as it is assessed at the level of nature and the issuance of nature. And you might say, well, that's slippery, right? That's kind of hard to pin down. And yet, I mean, there's no real way around building metaphysical consensus. It's always going to be hard to pin down, especially in a pluralistic society with like 327 million citizens. So just because it's hard doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I tend to think it's not. Um, so you can also see important ways in which this differs from Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment notions of justice. And I've highlighted one, but a big one when it concerns the social, political, ecclesial order is this notion that we come into a world in which relationships are already established or pre-constituted. Like you come into the world as the son or the daughter of your parents, as depending on the circumstances, the citizen of this, you know, polity or state or country. Um, and then, you know, depending on how many days elapse between your birth and your baptism, you basically come into this world as a son or daughter of, you know, this religious confession or of the Most High God, you know? 
And so that's not something that's chosen in the way in which we commonly conceive of chosen in the 21st century. Now you can choose it insofar as you can ratify it. You can say, all right, these things are the case, and so I consent, <laughs> or I abandon myself to it. But we don't constitute our own families, social environments, polities, or churches as if they were like a kind of genuine human creation. There's something with which we are entrusted, and then we reason upon them as part of the, the kind of data, right? So they're more like brute facts than they are human constructions in St. Thomas's understanding. What you see is very much contrary to certain Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment notions. Um, because you have, in many of them, in this kind of primitive state, man is almost wholly independent. And he chooses to either bind himself or free himself according to convenience or according to social facility or according to fear or according to whatever else. So there's a kind of economy of rights and duties, which is all the way down. So we think of man in this setting as principally a bearer of rights and potentially of associated duties or obligations. But then in light of that fact, he can engage in relationships. Whereas, again, the Thomistic notion is, nope, the relationships are baked in. You cannot, you know, birth yourself. I still think that, I still think that's true. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Times are changing. Um, so within this setting, now we can just describe um, the species of justice a little bit, and then we'll just touch on the, on the common good at the end. So St. Thomas, he di distinguishes injustice between what he calls particular justice and general justice. And what we're going to do here is just make a little triangle. All right, you have the polity, and then you have an individual. And then for illustration's sake, we'll have another individual. How we describe this individual is contentious, but we're just going to say individual and, and blaze through certain things. And so in general justice, what we're talking about is the relationship of the polity. Excuse me. We're talking about the relationship of the individuals to the polity. So we're talking about our relationship to the common good, our investment in the common good, our engagement with the common good, our commitment to the common good, our contribution to the common good. All right. Again, a fascinating feature of 21st century discourse is the failure to recognize this fact. And um, yeah, it's, it, you, you can see how this is gradually eroding. I saw a statistic recently uh, for those who are of the appropriate age and demographic for selective service in the United States. I think it's fewer than 25% are actually able to serve because of various impediments or obstacles, mostly dealing with mental health or with weight. Okay, so that's, that's a significant statistic, right? So we don't think in terms of selective service because one, it's not something that you advert to consciously ever in your life, except when you receive the card in the mail at the age of 18. But um, societally, we're not in a position at present to contribute and we don't even recognize it. But then you see how this is also conspicuously absent in discourse. I'll take this example. I don't mean for it to be you know, too terribly dramatic uh, or even polemic, but the, the Megan Rapino um, kind of vis-a-vis -vis the United States of America debate that's been going on for like the past, whatever, two months, like whether one should sing the national anthem or how one should interact with his or her country as a representative thereof. It's fascinating that like when Megan Rapino missed that penalty kick, most of the conservative media responses afterwards were basically summed up in the sentiment, ha, you know, 
which itself isn't a genuine contribution to the common good, right? It's just a kind of schadenfreude. It's rejoicing in the failure of one who doesn't share your mentality. But what is your mentality? How are we contributing to the common good? You know, you can boycott certain products, right? So you withhold the almighty dollar from a product, but then to which products do you give your money? Are you discerning insofar as this is more about jobs in the United States and this is less about... So you see that we don't even rise to the level of actually engaging the discourse because the shallowness of our exchanges is dictated in large part by the medium of communication. <laughs> and as Neil Postman observed, we're just amusing ourselves to death. So um, common, or excuse me, general justice concerns the individual vis-a-vis -vis the polity. And then particular justice concerns two other relationships. So that of the polity to the individual, which we call distributive justice, and then that of the individual to the individual, which we call commutative justice. So commutative justice is typically what we think of most. You go to the supermarket, you pick up your half gallon of oat milk, you tender your $7.47 of currency, and the cashier says, have a blessed day. Um, so that would be an exchange wherein you give the appropriate amount of money for the product, and then you leave with it. And with respect to distributive justice, and we're thinking about the polity giving goods to her citizenry on the basis of some standard. It might be need, it might be merit, it might be something else, right? But it's a distribution of the common goods, and in distributing them, they are particularized, okay? Whereas the justice which concerns the polity, which we call general justice or legal justice, and which in about the middle of the 20th century begins to be called social justice, is a different consideration. So then let's think a little bit about this common good. And so there's a sense in which there is a use, a right that is to say, which is born by the community. All right, so there is a good which is more transcendent. And as a result of being more transcendent, it admits of being distributed more widely without diminishment. All right, so there are various ranks of common goods, some less spiritual, some more spiritual. Here, spiritual, I just mean not material, transcending the matter. And, but you can see this evinced at various levels of culture. So one would be the kind of common good of a sports team. So I'm from uh, Philadelphia, city of champions. And um, there is a kind of solidarity which is born of a common cause. And in, people in Philadelphia right now are very excited about the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, they just, you know, clinched their playoff berth and, and they're hitting the ball real well. So people are excited such that when you're in the city of Philadelphia and when you're wearing red and white, uh, you know, you just say, go Phils. And that's the common language of discourse. You don't need to explain that. All right. But you're jogging past somebody. Somebody's jogging past you. Go Phils. You have a connection with that person because you participate in a higher good. It's not an exalted good. And we all recognize that fact. We have aspirations which go beyond sports victories. Uh, and yet it's still a common good. Now, let's say that there's somebody who moves to the area Let's say previously, you know, they lived in an out-of-way place that didn't have a sports team like Albuquerque or Santa Fe, New Mexico. And they've never really had a baseball home, but they catch the, you know, the baseball fever in the city of the city of champions. And, and so they say, I'm going to be a, a Phillies fan. And so they get their vintage Phillies jerseys uh, and then they get their sweet Phillies hat and they line their shelf with Phillies bobbleheads. Now, the other fans in the city would not begrudge that. They'd be delighted at that. The person is not just, you know, hopping on the bandwagon because the Philadelphia Phillies happen to be a decent team. They're in the NL East, and the Braves are better, so it's still going to be hard times October. If they're going to win, they're going to have to sweat for it. 
So this person is joining in a sense of, I've come to a new region, to a new city, I'm going to invest myself in it. Now, in a certain sense, you would think that there's less of the Philadelphia spirit to go around because it's being distributed over more individuals. But that's not the case. I would submit to you that there's probably more of the Philadelphia spirit to go around. Because the difference between being at a Super Bowl parade circa 2018 with 100,000 people and a Super Bowl parade with 300,000 people is palpable. And the latter is better. It's electric. So there's a sense in which the common good is not diminished insofar as more participate in it. And they're not cashing out on it. They're not trying to particularize it and make it their own. They're trying to contribute to it with their spirit, with their support, with the crazy things that they say on social media, with the horrendous way in which they treat the fans of opposing teams, okay? This is all pertinent to common good discourse. Now, I chose something which is kind of banal on purpose. It's close to our experience, and we can laugh about it. But then you think of other instances of the common good, and let's start close to home, namely with the family. So, for instance, um, I have two sisters who are married. One has five children. The other has four children. Now, as they welcome more children into their home, the question is, is their good diminished by greater division? You could think of certain ways in which that might be the case insofar as mother and father have less bandwidth with each child and thereby potentially less solicitude to express in the direction of each new child. And there might be children in the middle who feel lost in the shuffle and as a result of which skipped over, which is not insignificant. But I think that there's also in our society a kind of fear of welcoming more children into the home because we want to curate their future. We want to ensure that they have the best possible education, formation, chances of succeeding. And so we're hesitant to welcome more children in the home rather than, or excuse me, at the possibility or at the risk of depriving those whom we have already welcomed. Uh, St. John Paul II, though, and I've forgotten in which document, but he poses a challenge to families and he says, the best imaginable riches that you can offer your children are brothers and sisters, right? Because their lives are enriched infinitely thereby. Their lives are enriched infinitely thereby. So I wouldn't say that it's like, okay, mother and father welcome their first child. That child has 100% of each parent's attention. Then they welcome their second child. Now each child has 50% of its parents. It doesn't work like that, right? It doesn't observe a kind of crass mathematical logic. There's something mysterious going on here. There's something corporate. There's something of their genuine solidarity, which redounds to the good of all the members, okay? And you also realize this in the failure of marriage, right? So when a marriage fails, you know, please spare us that fate. But when a marriage fails, it's not like the members of the marriage or the members of the family cash out on it in equal proportionate parts. Nobody gets anything, right? Nobody gets anything, which is tragic. But it brings before our mind's eye the realization that, that this common good is something else. It's not just the sum of the parts, right? It's something else. And then we're thinking about this in terms of political discourse. So in terms of the polity, right, there's something else here. There's a sense in which I make the United States a wonderful country in which to live. And so there, there's, there's a kind of logic to American exceptionalism, not that we're meant to bang the breast and beat the drum and annoy all of our neighbors in the international scene, because I think that's foolish and it's often an example of bad ambassadorship. But I do think it's appropriate as an American, and perhaps some of you are from other countries and you might say similar things of your own nation, that we can say that the, the United States of America is the best country in the way that a mother might say, my children are the best children. It's not a comparative claim. We haven't made a list of all of whatever 268 member nations of the United Nations and then isolated for pertinent factors and made an Excel macro to crunch the data to spit out to us what's the best possible country. 
None of us are motivated to do that work. I can say it's the best because it's mine, not because I'm great, right? But because there's a love there, a kind of filial piety, which generates us. There's a sense in which we are begotten, you know, by God, we are begotten by our parents and we are begotten by our country. And as a result of which it has a claim on us. It has a claim to our love. It has a claim to our investment, to our engagement, to our participation. And so when people say things like, not my, whatever, fill in the blank, you like, not my representative, not my senator, not my president, people want to check out of the political process to distance themselves from the corporate decisions, which are rendered by the entirety of the polity, that undermines the common good. Because it begins to say this thing, which formerly we held to be common, is now, in my mentality, effectively particularized, balkanized, all right, exploded in a certain sense. So um, when, when treating with the polity, we do so with a certain fear and trembling, lest we fall into tropes or lest we fall into patterns of thought which would distance us from the fact of our commitment. Because it has a claim on us, because we were born into it, right? Because it's likened to a mother. And people hear that, and then the specter of totalitarianism, you know, starts looming over their shoulder. It's like, okay, no, no, no. You know, okay, okay, we're not saying that. Right? We're not saying that. So we're not saying that the state has a claim to us which runs roughshod over conscience or which can claim that we sin because there's an integrity to the person, there's an integrity to his conscience and to the intermediate institutions which ought to buffer him from any totalitarian reach which could arise in the failure of healthy polity. But we are, in light of all these factors, still admitting, even you know, proposing that the common good has a genuine claim. So for a final thing, just a couple of distinctions, which can help us to appreciate this now having given uh, a kind of 30,000 foot view. We're gonna make the distinction between first common goods and particular goods, and then amongst the different types of holes which are at stake. And I'm taking this from Father Aquinas Gilbo, who did his doctoral work at the University of Freiburg, taught at the Dominican House of Studies, and now serves as the chaplain at the Catholic University of America. So. I've referenced some of these things, but just to schematize them for you in more helpful fashion. Particular goods diffuse to one person. All right, they diffuse to one person, and they are necessarily alien to other persons. Common goods diffuse their good to many persons. All right, and they do so all at once. We talked about the family. We talked about the well. We talked about the sports team. We talked about the family. We talked about the polity. The university is another setting in which such a thing takes place on a classical model the city is also such a thing and we see that a little bit with with sports uh, and we can see that in other dimensions like here in washington dc although there are a lot of people from out of town who come in for the cherry blossoms there is a sense of city solidarity during the cherry blossoms and the associated festival and you know kind of like athletic contests and um, so yeah so there's a sense in which you have a, a greater appreciation at certain moments or in certain settings that it's yours and that it has a claim to you now, a, a common good is effectively an indivisible whole, all right? So it's not just a divisible sum um, because a, a divisible sum is not a genuine common good, all right? It's just a, a sum of parts as I referred to it recently and recently being like seven minutes ago. So um, the examples that Father Aquinas will give of this type of good, which is a kind of aggregate good or a sum of parts good, a divisible sum, would be like a candy jar, a pension fund, or a reservoir. So it might look like a candy jar when you go into a doctor's office. They certainly haven't done this anytime since March 2020. Uh, but they used to have, you know, a jar into which you could reach your hand and grab your ill-flavored dum-dum and then leave just disappointed with the whole of that experience. 
Um, but when you do that, you make it yours. When you reach into that divisible sum, you diffuse the good to yourself and then you thereby alienate it from others. So it was never others, it was potentially a good of others, but insofar as it can only ever be diffused to one, when you alienate it from the common stock, it becomes yours actually, all right? And it ceases to be potentially others. Another example he gives um, is a pension fund. Uh, so many people have had the terrible experience of having their pension fund exhausted without their permission or consultation, but we know that it's a limited amount of money and that when you take your share of the money, you alienate it from others and it's not, re it's not a renewable resource. I mean, depending upon market economy, dot, 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 but it's not in principle, a renewable resource. The alienation of a certain good makes it thereby no longer accessible to others. And then a reservoir. So it looks, again, this is a reservoir that serves the needs of the entire city. I don't know if we actually drink the water, which is up there in Shaw in that reservoir. I think that's the closest reservoir. I don't know where water comes from. I know like in New York City, the water comes from way, way, way far away. Like Adirondack State Park travels down a big pipeline, some 200 miles, I think. But I don't know where this water comes from. And, but when you partake of the water of a reservoir, again, you alienate it. So that's perhaps to give too many examples of the same phenomenon, but at the very least, you've had it sufficiently illustrated. <laughs> and so a divisible sum, we have said, is not a genuine common good. Okay, it's an aggregate of goods, uh, a collection that diffuses itself by dividing itself and then dispersing these particular goods formerly held as an aggregate to individuals. And so then what about the whole of a common good? And here, Father Aquinas in his, and he wrote his dissertation specifically on um, the exchange between the students of Jacques Maritain, I'm thinking here particularly of T.I. Eshman, and then uh, Charles de Koenig, who taught for a while at Laval University in Quebec on this particular issue as an interpretive issue in the tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas. So he says, we can observe three basic kinds of wholes. All right, so there's a quantitative whole, and this would be a whole of a simple quantity of something. So an example would be like a chocolate bar. I actually had a chocolate bar while walking out the door because I didn't know the next time that I would eat. You know how sometimes that happens, like you're imagining a situation in which you might have, have, not have access to food for like some limited number of hours, but the mere thought of it is enough for you to swoon. So I had a couple pieces of chocolate. But each part of that chocolate bar is homogenous with the whole of the chocolate bar. Okay, so it's a quantitative whole insofar as the whole of the quantity is, I mean, it's just, it's the same thing all the way through. Whatever part you break off is in accord with the whole of it. Then you have a substantial whole, and this would be an organic unity, an example of which would be like an animal. Okay, so you take the parts, they are organized and sold, and you have an animal. It does not function like a chocolate bar because each bit of the animal is not the animal because it's organized, because it's differentiated. And then you have a virtual whole or a whole of order. And what this is, in effect, is a network of relationships. All right, so it's a network of relationships, and it's ordered to an end. And so, like a family, for instance, is a network of relationships of father to mother. I mean, I suppose you would say of husband to wife and of wife to husband, and of parents to children, of children to parents. And you can break that out insofar as those relationships are each distinct. Uh, but it, it amounts to a network of relationships which constitutes a whole of order, then organized ultimately by a further trajectory. And so like the family, for instance, would be ordered to higher intermediate institutions and to the polity, and we might say to the church for those baptized. Okay, so there's 
an order to it and a trajectory whereby it breaks onto a higher union, right? A higher common good. So in this network of relationships, each part retains its own identity and its own activity apart from the identity and activity bestowed on it by the whole, and yet it genuinely participates in the whole. So notice, this is not a quantitative whole, a whole of bland egalitarianism in which things can be broken off and melted down and rejoined, irrespective of the order of relationships, nor is it a substantial whole, which is probably how the totalitarian state would envision itself, depending upon the political philosophy on which it relies, right? That it's, that it's just one thing, right? It's just the people and, you know, the Senate of Rome or whatever else. So in this whole of order or virtual whole, each part retains its own identity and activity apart from the identity and activity bestowed on it by the whole. So then this is the foundation of social, political, and ecclesial discourse, providing a metaphysical vision which fixes the do and what is good and orients our understanding of the rights involved. Okay, so we think about it in terms of natures, relationships, and further orientation. That would be the kind of general shape of a classical medieval meditation upon the common good as the heart of social, political, ecclesial discourse. This sounds, I mean, taken in those terms, it sounds relatively simple. You're like, yeah, duh. But how often do they do that? How often do we do that? I would say not very often. Uh, because typically we think in an alternate set of paradigms. Um, so let me pick something that's interesting and less than maximally controversial. Um, like, for, like, for instance, in the United States, I think the last time that welfare has been reformed was in 1996. So it's been a minute. All right. And it's not clear that all of our welfare programs are actually advancing their stated aims. Okay. So here in the District of Columbia, typically many welfare programs uh, are available. The most, I think the highest concentration is in Ward 8. Many of them concern the underprivileged, um, the, and then y young mothers, actually. I worked in a pregnancy center in Northwest in Adams and Morgan for a while, and young mothers have access to a number of goods and a number of helps, which is awesome. Uh, but then the question is, to what extent are these things enabling, and to what extent are these things are empowering? Which is kind of a principal question concerning welfare reform because you don't want people to become, as it were, prisoners of the welfare state, such that they become more firmly entrenched uh, or engrossed in you know, patterns of dependence. That is very difficult for us to have a conversation about because the types of, um, you know, like, what would the word be? Curses, maledictions, which are shouted across the aisle if you try to raise these questions are, are severe, right? Severe. Like imagine trying to host that conversation Good luck. Good luck, right? It's super, super difficult. One, because we have great difficulty establishing a common vision of what constitutes the polity, great difficulty constituting a common vision of what is, or excuse me, establishing a common vision of what constitutes the good, and great difficulty establishing a common vision as to what constitutes the person. So if you have no metaphysical, what, consensus, how are you going to talk about a network of relationships, I mean, natures, in relate, you know, people with nature, subsisting in natures, in a network of relationships, which can conduces unto an end. It's going to be hard. <laughs> so then we resort to the kind of political machinations, which get us whatever we need or want within the election cycle. And then if we have to wash our hands of it, you know, after the election has transpired, you know, that, that might be fine too. 
And so you see there's, there's a kind of despair that creeps into the political process, which is lamentable. And I don't mean to be naive about it. It's like, oh, would that it were different. It's like, okay, thanks, Father Gregory. Not helpful at all. But we can host these conversations in local settings, kind of safer settings, which help us then to host them in broader settings. And I think that's one of the goals of this type of education or formation. And I think the last point that I'll make, and then I'll open it to your questions, is that friendship can actually be an entree into the common good of the family, the common good of the polity, the common good of the church, because it's closer to our experience and it's something that we practice at all times in our life, even when our families are far from us and when our political contribution seems entirely distant. And even like our appertaining to the church can feel a little bit attenuated, like in a big city environment. So why do I say this about friendship? Well, because there's a sense in which friendship is a good which is transcendent and which is diffused broadly and not diminished in being diffused. So there's a sense in which you increase your capacity for human life in friendship. All right, so Chesterton has this beautiful line in the midst of The Man Who Was Thursday where his protagonist, Gabriel Syme, comes to discover that somebody whom he thought to be an enemy is in fact a friend. And he says, throughout the whole ordeal, his root fear had been isolation. He says, I concede to the mathematicians that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. Basically, the difference between feeling that he was alone and knowing that he had a friend wasn't like, oh, things are a little bit better. It was like life, which formerly was impossible, is now possible. And I think all of us had had comparable experiences in, in friendship. So it's not a mistake that the ancients will say we were as if one soul in two bodies, right? Or in the Divine Comedy, one of the souls remarks upon you know, uh, a soul coming up from a lower rank, and he says, behold, one who will augment my love. There's a sense in which friendship gives us the capacity to experience life more richly, more deeply. C.S. Lewis has this example where he says, picture three friends. I'm paraphrasing, and I'm also making up the names. But he says, picture three friends. Let's call them Adam, Benjamin, and Caleb. And they have a wonderful relationship. And let's say, lamentably, that Caleb dies. Now, you might think that Adam now has more of Benjamin and Benjamin has more of Adam since they don't have to share their time or their attention with this third party. But just the reverse is true because there are parts of Adam that only Caleb could draw out. There are parts of Benjamin that only Caleb could draw out. And now Adam has lost not only Caleb, but those parts of Benjamin. And Benjamin has lost not only Caleb, but those parts of Adam. So there's a way in which, again, friendship increases our capacity to experience life and to partake of its richness. And when we begin thinking in terms of friendship, it's not just a matter of managing my social calendar or of canceling plans at the last minute or ghosting somebody if it's convenient, didn't see your text, right? Because if we don't invest or engage in these relationships, then we will be left to our particular goods in their relative isolation. And life gradually does become insupportable, right? So there has to be something beyond my, you know, like educative or political aims. There has to be something, a setting, a context in which I can share my life. Because if it's not shared, who's to hold it precious? Because I can't bear the weight, that's for darn sure. So I think that investing in friendships gives us an entree into the common good more broadly, and it prepares us for family life, it prepares us for political life, it prepares us for ecclesial life. Now mind you, all of those lives are already afoot, and we're participating in them, perhaps in modest and simple ways, or perhaps in more, more excellent ways be besides. Um, and yet, I think it's worth reclaiming this vision, so as to partake richly of the goods which it proposes. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org 
slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.